0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to patreon.com backslash Cinema. There you'll get early access to reviews for movies such as the ones that we are going to be talking about this episode. Um, Brief overviews of newer older movies that i'm watching for the first time which i started earlier this year and plan on continuing as well as if you go further up on the uh subscription amount you can also get deep dives like the one that i am uh, currently working on for this month when it comes to the directorial career of clive barker that's patreon.com backslash sonic cinema So last year, I did a uh, Class of 1999 series where I looked at um, some of the most noteworthy films and some of the not-so-noteworthy films of the 1999 movie year, which is a year that I hold near and dear to my heart. And uh, this year, we're going to look at some parts of the 2000 movie year, but not necessarily on the same level as I did with 1999, as it's all going to be focused on a particular genre. And that genre is horror. And we're going to, we're going to center in on a few movies tonight, but we're also going to talk about the uh, genre in general, uh, ...for that year, and join me to do so is the uh, creator of uh, Death Ensemble, the website he's been on here before, and I swear we'll be talking about new good movies at some point during this our time together. Uh, please welcome back to the show Phil Fasso. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, and Brian, if we switch to good movies at, at some point, I'm going to be really confused. <laughs> why when I, when I come on it seems to be we are the kings of trash, and we will discuss only garbage
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i mean you you certainly you certainly pick there were certainly some choices that you brought up uh when we when we talked about this last year, I mean, maybe it's just the fact that we were talking about the rage carry two and end of days together that made you choose the movies that we're talking about. There is one genuinely good movie that we will be talking about. That was sort of a last minute addition to this, but um, I'm looking forward. Yeah. To so we
1: get a, we get a chance to redeem ourselves, yeah. which is odd for you. You only when we have this conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. I am looking forward to this discussion though, because of the fact that, um, 2000, honestly, like the year 2000 in general, there are some great movies that came out that year on the whole though. It's, definitely not one of my favorite movie years um it's it's a relatively weak one especially compared to something like 1999 or 2001 um and horror was certainly uh no no different um let's put it this way when arguably the best movie best horror movie well okay there are two ways i could go with this Uh, arguably the best movie released for the first time in 2000 that was somewhat horror was Requiem for a Dream, which is not strictly speaking a horror movie. The best horror movie that came out in the year 2000 was arguably the uh, new cut of The Exorcist that came out that year, which include The Spider Walk and some other stuff and basically stuff that doesn't hold up compared to the original version of the Exorcist. Um, it's
1: just like, I, I was looking out, I checked out a list of, you know, when, when we first discussed getting together to do this, a couple of weeks ago, I had just pulled up a list and the horror movies that came out that year are all over the place. Yeah. So you have, you have know, Ginger Snaps, which is a very low budget, I believe Canadian flick. You know, mm-hmm. basically about, you know, using, using turning into a world as a metaphor for coming of age for a woman, right?
2: Yeah.
1: So that's very low budget, very cheap, very, you know, made on the fly. And then on the other end of things, you know, what, what lies beneath with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah. So, I mean, you're all over the place here, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Dracula 3000, or two, Dracula 2000, I'm sorry, came out that year. Yeah. Awful. I saw that in the theaters and regret that. <laughs> I mean, one of my guilty pleasures is Blair Witch 2, Book of
2: Shadows,
1: <laughs> which I saw in the movies and hated.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I, was, I, I liked the first one. I don't like it so much anymore, but, you know, I, I'm like, what the hell did they do? And then a couple of years ago, I, like, a year or two ago, I watched it again, and I'm like, wow, this is hysterical. Why didn't I have some campy fun with this one was in the theater? And that poor director, who was very famous for directing the, um,
0: Paradise uh, what are
1: the names movies. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he got roped into that and there's a whole story about he didn't get to make the movie that he wanted. But besides that, you know, yeah. that is a guilty pleasure of mine because that movie was just, if you look at it as as a horror comedy, it's incredible. As a straight-up horror movie, which it was supposed <laughs> to be, it's fucking awful. Yeah. You know, and then what really interests me about this whole thing is that sc- Screen was what,
0: 96,
1: 97? 96. 96. Yeah. So we're only four years out from there. And basically, in this whole line of movies, you know, you could tell that four years, over four years, the geography of horror had changed because you only have two movies that are that whole meta, that whole self-reflective, you know, self-aware thing. You have Urban Legends Final Cut, which is, again, awful. I mean, I like the first one. The first one was, you know, dumb fun. But you have that, and then you have... Wes Craven putting on what will be the cap on that series for a long time was Scream Three. Yeah. But even he, you could tell after that, was stepping away from it because it seemed that whole thing with the self-aware Kevin Williamson scripts came and kind of
0: went very really quickly, didn't it? Oh yeah, it did. I mean, you know, it it's and it's funny because of the fact that like the the sort of team horror that was so jam-packed with actors that Came out of Scream, and I know what you did last summer. It basically morphed into teen comedies, coming out with American Pie and all of that for a few years, and then yeah, it, it basically like in two thousand one, two thousand two, it basically just died off. And yeah, I mean you're you're right. Like the and it's the nineties when it comes to horror. I mean we're talking about the year two thousand. But the nineties, when it comes to horror, is very weird because you know, in the eighties you had it it was basically the heyday of the slasher film. The nineties there's not really a set identity. Like there No, there really
1: isn't. And looking at two thousand, that goes into the year that we're talking about now because like I said, these movies are all over the place. Yeah. There's no like defining theme between I'm looking at thirty different you know, posters on my on my computer screen right now and it's just all over the place. There's yeah. no common theme, you know? Yeah. Like seventies you had the religious horror and you had the Jollos and all that. Eighties, like you said, with slashes. By the time you hit the nineties, I mean the thing was, you know, that the early nineties they were still trying to carry out stuff like, you know, um Jason goes to hell and those type of things and nobody cared anymore. You mm-hmm. know, that was said and done pretty much. Yeah. So it looks like the whole Subgenre: genre, the, the whole genre of horror is just looking for some kind of direction that's grasping all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the one that really sticks out to me is What Lies Beneath, because, like I said, Harrison Ford, and I tried watching I, I liked it when it first came out. My ex wife and I watched it on DVD, we had a fun time with it. I tried watching it recently, and like the first 20 minutes are about him and his wife, and he's mm-hmm. taking his daughter to college and all that. And it's a very, like, setup. But I'm like, wow! This movie's like two hours long, and it doesn't need to be. You know, so I couldn't. Even, I, I I should have gone through with it because once it gets kicking, it's a really good movie. But it's it's one of those movies that's too long. It's just interesting that Harrison Ford is technically what would be called a horror movie at that point. Right. You
0: know, well, well, and directed by Robert Zemeckis. I mean, this that's yes, the it is. He, That's the movie he made while he was weighing on Tom Hanks to uh, Castaway, right? His tra- Transformation for Castaway, and yeah. it was. And I, I haven't seen it since two thousand. I wasn't that big a fan of it at that time, um, and I don't know. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe I just wasn't necessarily in the mood for it. Because um, that that summer, it just in general was not really a good summer for me. But um, no, there. You know, yeah. And the thing is, it's like you do sort of see, in a way, you. After Six Sense, you sort of start to see a, a a sort of leaning towards the more supernatural aspects of horror. Because the next, because in two thousand one, you have the you have the Others, which was a fairly big hit, and then you start to see more along these lines of supernatural horror until. Paranormal activity, which really kind of ushers in the found footage era.
1: Well, you also have to remember that right now we are at 2000. We're only about three or four years off from Saw. Yeah. So it, you went in the whole torture point which is I don't want to get started on what garbage that is. <laughs> I don't. I don't enjoy watching people tied down the chairs with their fingernails being ripped off for ninety yeah. minutes. But that whole thing too. At like the time, it was funny because that whole thing like Saw came out in two thousand seven, two thousand four, I believe, and then it was a sequel two thousand four, and then it was a sequel a year until Paranormal Activity came out,
2: yeah. and
1: then that was the whole thing. So it just seems like the horror genre, like like you said, you had a whole decade in the eighties where it was basically slashers. I mean, you had other stuff in there, but that was the dominant type of movie, right. you know. Whereas here, it seems like. Horror has been looking to grasp onto something for a while. and It stays a little bit with scream and that type of movie, the self-aware stuff. It's torture porn for a while. It's found footage, and the funny thing is that none of these just really. It, it seems like what, and again, it, it's what I call the Friends philosophy. Like I remember when the show Friends came out. And I hate that show. I would <laughs> not. You, 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 I'd rather, I'd rather be victim to some of the horrors in some of these movies and watch a fucking <laughs> episode of that. But the thing is, once Friends came out, all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of TV series the next couple of years come out where, oh, it's six Friends or four Friends or whatever, and they live in a, an urban city somewhere, and they all needed a coffee shop, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, Holler obviously has been very trendy since the very beginning, pretty much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, and the thing is that it just it just astounds me that it's, it's been so long where we haven't had like a full decade where anything caught on and just ran with it, you know? Yeah where you could look at, like, you can look at, I mean, I don't care if it's, you're looking at, two. if you're looking at the 2009 version of Friday the 13th, you could still look at that and see the footprint in the 80s, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. No,
2: and, I, and that
1: was, you know, yeah. I, I like that, I like that that edit, especially because I was growing up in the 80s, and that was, you know, my parents got their first VCR in 82 or 83, you know? Mm. And it was like the whole thing of going to the videos, doing my mom's going to rent those horror movies because of Halloween or it's a Saturday night. Yeah, well that was a lot of fun back then. I have fond memories, even if the movies are mostly garbage. I have fond memories of watching them, you
0: know? Right. No, yeah. Um it's well yeah, and it's 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 just really like like you said, I mean the the year in horror and the genre in general was just kind of all over the place. And I think we're gonna show that in the four main films that we're gonna be talking about tonight. Um and to start let's go ahead and let's go ahead and start with the the one that most definitively set up a franchise in uh Final Destination. Um sure. and I I think that's probably a good place to start the one that's most definitively a horror movie. The other ones kind of switch genres up on you which is fine and we'll get into those aspects of it and uh so final destination starts with it basically starts with a uh a teenager who's going on a class trip to paris or france and they his his classmates and he get on the um, airplane, and he has a vision of the plane crashing. And he has a freak out on the plane, and he gets thrown <laughs> off along with some of the uh, other students, in addition to a couple of the advisors, and the... And they're off in the... Uh, at the terminal, and the plane crashes. So they've averted death. Well, needless to say, death is not too happy about that, and the rest of the movie is basically um, death taking revenge on the the people that he it was robbed of in the plane crash That right there yes. it, 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 what white basically just described as a slasher film, and I, I think that's one of the things that is. Kind of interesting about Final Destination and the sequels that um that inspired is the fact that it's it's a bit of a different take on this slasher film than we're accustomed to. And I I think that and I'm not a huge fan of many of the sequels in general, and I mean we can talk about that for a little bit.
1: Oh, we are definitely going (laughs) to talk about the character names in the fourth one. We'll get to that later.
0: (laughs) but um this this one is a really well put together slasher uh the plane crash dream is very good uh the the idea that you have predestination here um survivors guilt as part of the themes in this movie as well as some pretty fairly imaginative kills um overall it's a it's a, it's a solid movie it's it's an okay movie it's I will admit I feel rewatching it this month to uh talk about here, I don't like it quite as much as I did. And that's actually a common theme in some of the movies that we're talking about tonight as well, is where I'm not as big a fan of it as I was back in uh the day when I first saw it. Uh so so yeah, that, those are kind of my initial thoughts on Final Destination.
2: Well, I mean,
1: here's, here's my initial thoughts, okay? First off, I, I think that what really hooks me in at the beginning is the whole, how many times, I don't know how many times you've flown. I got on a plane a couple of weeks ago and I don't have any problem with flying, right? Mm-hmm. But I got a friend who I've traveled with before and he needs to be drugged down and he can't get on a plane. I literally stood behind him on line to get on a Southwest flight one time and he was, like, tremoring. He was, like, shaking, and it was tremors going through his system. Yeah. Right? So I like how the whole beginning ties into that. Yeah. Like, obviously, fear of death is a common primal thing, right? Mm. But fear of death on a plane amplifies things because, hey, you get in a car accident, but even if the car flips over, your odds are you're going to end up on the ground, right? If you're in the... Thirty thousand feet in the air, and your plane blows up or a wing falls off, you are basically dead. There's yeah. no coming back yeah. from that, pretty yeah. much. So I think that it does a really good job of of that, of keying into that primal fear of flying, right? Like we're not supposed to be in the air naturally. We don't have wings, you know. Mm. So basically, it's a very once we're once we're up in the air, even if even if we don't mind flying like me, we're out of our element, you know.
2: Right.
1: And there's a, a there's a real potential. Every time anyone gets on a plane, that they might die. Now, you could say that about walking across the street, but it's a little different when you're 30,000 feet in the air, you
2: know?
1: Yeah. So I thought that was good. I thought the way they set it up with them coming off the plane and then the plane blowing up in the background, I thought, oh, that was really well done, mm-hmm. you know? And then I thought that a big part of it is in order to... In order to enjoy that movie on a real level, and I'm not talking about just fucking heads flying off, people getting hit by buses and decapitated by trains and shit. Yeah. If you want to enjoy that movie on a real level, like enjoy a form of filmmaking, you have to buy into the character, which is Devin Sauer's character, right? Because he's yeah. elite.
0: I don't, do you remember his name in that movie? I don't, as a matter of fact.
1: Well, we'll get to naming in there in a little bit, too. <laughs>
0: but...
1: This, is, this 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 series of movies has a weird fascination with how it names its characters. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, if I'm not buying into his performance, I thought, you know, I've seen Devin Tell and some other stuff. He's a fairly good actor, you know?
2: Yeah. I
1: mean, he ended up being most famous probably for, Friday. I think he was in Idle Hands, too. I'm pretty sure he's the lead in Idle Hands. So he ended up being pretty much known for some genre films. But, you know, I mean, he he, he gives a real performance, you know? Right. Not so much with some of the other actors, you know, Like, and I, one of the big, I've never really liked Allie Lauder. And this is the first thing I ever saw her in because she's just flat in a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. she's, she's just not very, you know, she, and she's supposed to play, like she's supposed, supposed to play like the quiet book nerd type girl, you know, the bookworm girl.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm not really buying her in that role at all. Yeah. She doesn't pull it off. Like you see a little copy of some poetry. I hate when they do this in filmmaking. Like it's such surface level crap. Like she's reading a, a poetry book while she's waiting to get online. On on the point. So she's reserved, quiet, she's female, and she's reading the poetry book. Ooh, she must be deep, you know? <laughs> so I get the whole thing, like I wouldn't really call this a slasher. And here's why. I think for a slasher, you need to have like I don't even consider the Friday. It's like my friend might keep me in this that the Friday flicks, the, the Nightmare Elm Street flicks, aren't really slashes because they don't really mold to the the concept, the, the the trope so much. But anyway, I wouldn't really call this a slasher because this is really more like a Rube Goldberg type film, and this is just <laughs> the start of a lot of Rube Goldberg devices in the series, right?
0: Yeah, that that is an excellent point, yeah. Yes, because it seems like, and,
1: and see, that's well, well, we'll talk about the sequels in a little bit, but as far as this movie goes, it's pretty tight. It's yeah. not like, and there's some decent tense, tense scenes, like when they're in the, they're in, I think they they stop, like, like they, well, the, I forget the actor's name. The guy who used to, whatever, regardless, the one friend who's kind of cocky and kind of an asshole who got stuck with his crew, you know, he pulls the car onto the tracks, and Devin yeah, is train... stuck with him, and
0: a... yeah, the train exactly. sequence is really good. Like the, tra- yeah, cause the train, yeah, because it's tense. Se- yeah, the train sequence is arguably my favorite of the "quote unquote" revenge deaths in this entire yeah. in in this entire movie, and maybe one of my favorites in the entire series. I mean, one my it occurred to me rewatching the entire series that one of my one of my biggest problems with these is that and. It, it really starts, especially with the uh, teacher in this movie, whose name is an homage to... Val Lincoln. Luton, right? Uh, her, her death is way too over the top. Is so fucking goofy. It is just ridiculous. Oh, and, it's ridiculous. And, and the idea that, like... I mean, the first couple of deaths are actually pretty solid in this movie. And then and and then you have her death which is just ridiculous and over the top and then you have the train sequence which is pretty great and that was my big that's my biggest problem with the sequels is like the revenge deaths like really just go over the top and I think it's the the third one I think in particular with the uh with with the two girls who get caught in the uh oh beds. the yeah the
2: it's, tanning bed
0: like, oh my god this is so absurd this is so ridiculous and you know it it's it's just overall like i mean it, and the thing is it's like i i think especially the first few movies like the initial vision sequence like the the plane crash in this one the the traffic destruction you know the the uh
1: the truck, yeah, the the pile up with cars the cars and the up, the log yeah, and all, the all that,
0: that is... in the second one and the roller coaster and the third one. Now the roller coaster gets pretty absurd, but at the same time, like it still works sort of and then the next two just really got on my nerves to a certain extent. Well, I mean,
1: so let, let me explain my problem with this series in general, and then we'll get back to the first one, okay? My problem is, okay, so death's design, right? That's what Tony Todd tells us. Hey, it's death's design. He yeah. cheated death. Now, death's going to come back to you, and it's not going to be written. That's basically the whole theme of this entire yeah. series, right? This yeah. entire franchise, okay? But the problem is, once you get past the first movie, it's a one trick pony.
2: Yeah, it
1: right? is it's a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. So and and these films like are more formulaic than the Jason films <laughs> from the eighties. <80s.
0: laughs> Which is
1: like okay, like so so inciting incident at the beginning, some big giant track, some big giant accident, some weird thing I don't know where it's gonna kill everybody. Yeah. And again, the plane crash kinda made sense, you know? The car the car collision, that whole thing in the second one even made sense,
2: you know. Yeah.
1: There have been pileups like that. Once you get to the roller coaster and then by the fourth one, they're in like a NASCAR race. It's like, oh well, what is going goodness. on here?
0: Well, in the fourth
1: and then I the guess- fifth one, the, the fifth one I've actually never seen oddly enough, but that's <laughs> the one with the bridge, right? Don't they have a bridge yes. that collapses? Yes.
0: Yes. It's a bridge. Cause I hadn't, I actually had not seen the fifth one until this month. Like I, because I hated the fourth one so much. I didn't even bother with the fifth one. But well don't worry, because
1: the writers movie. didn't bother the writers didn't bother with the fourth one.
0: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and that's the fucking problem. We'll get back to that in a second. So you have your exciting inciting incident, right? Some big giant pile up bodies everywhere, right? Yeah. That's number one. Okay, so that's fine. That's that. Then you find out, oh wait a second, this is just a vision, right? Mm-hmm. So whoever our protagonist is is gonna drag a bunch of people out of whatever situation cheat death and then death has to come back and kill everybody in the most ridiculous, Hey, yeah. mouse trap on top of uh you know, on top of a flying toaster on top of uh, a, <laughs> you know, uh Swiss, Swiss, knife on top of a switchblade shot, you know, that type of stuff. Right? right. So the problem is though, by the time I'm to the third one, like I've already seen this twice. I know what's coming.
2: Yeah.
1: I even know when the fake outs are coming, like when someone's going to automatically step out of the way, Oh, the water's coming down from the pipe, which is starting an electric electrical fire. But she's stepping out of the way to go to the next room, which is going to have the clothesline swim through because the electric fire set the clothesline pole on fire. You know? yeah. it's just, yeah. So even when the, even when I'm supposed to get faked out, I'm not getting faked out because I know it's coming because yeah. I'm smart and I know how to watch movies. You know? So the, the problem is that, you know, and at least I, my favorite of all of them is the second one. Because the second one goes out of its way to find ways to tie back to the first one.
2: Yeah.
1: Which I thought was just really, really creative the way it went, you know? Mm. And they did a really good job. I mean, it's silly and all. So, but the thing is that, hey, look, I understand what this movie is. I understand that it's, it's, you know, a sequel to a popular horror movie. It's not as good as the first one technically, but it's all the fun the first one, I think, you know? Right. Because there's all this stuff going on. I mean, and some of the kills in that—the Bob Wyatt kill, the the, the Paul Blanc through the the girl's head when the yeah. <laughs> when the uh, the airbag blows off—and the, even the thing with the kid getting his teeth pulled—it's <laughs> yeah. just so grotesque. It's <laughs> silly, but it's a lot of fun, you know. Mm-hmm. So my my now back to the first one, okay? So the first one was. Better than the rest because, hey, this is a new idea. Like, yeah. I know it's just a variation on a theme, but no one's ever gone this particular version, a variation of that version. You know? So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at something different. So I don't understand why all the characters are named after horror luminaries, like Val Luton. All right? Yeah. So <laughs> I wrote a horror comedy with a buddy of mine, that be almost 10 years ago, called Dead Tension. And it's a... It's about a, a zombie outbreak in high school during detention, and it's a horror comedy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I used the tropes. I'm like, you know, we're just going to go with names of horror people who've been, in, you know, actors and directors or whatever who've been in zombie movies, right? But I played it in because the whole thing was like a joke, you know? So it's like, all right, this is just part of a joke that if you're inside and you love zombie movies, you know, you're going to appreciate the names of the characters here, you know? Yeah. So that made sense to me to do that. Here it's like, what the hell does the director of cat people have to do with this? Right, like absolutely nothing. It's like, hey, listen, we're we're horror writers. We figure we're smarter than our audience. So one name is is called Val Luton. So if you're looking up on the internet, you'll find out who Val Luton is. You know?
0: Yeah. And the funny thing is, at this point, like the the target audience for this movie would not have understood who Val Luton is because
1: you know, no, absolutely he, not. And and you have to remember the that, that...
0: at the time. <laughs>
1: You have to remember that back in the in the year 2002, the Internet wasn't what it is today. Yeah. So not every kid's going to be running of his cell phone going, oh, what's the name Val Luton mean? You know, or looking it up on IMDb or whatever, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So the thing is that, you know, like, it's just, it. just, what really annoys me about it, especially that girl Val Luton, the teacher, is that, there's no tangential reason, there's no, no direct reason for her to be named that. Like, it's just like horror writers show off. Yeah. And I think they kind of carry that out through the series until you get to the fourth one where they just got lazy. So I'm going to read you some of the character names from the IMDb, and I checked these against the credits when I watched it about six months ago. You're going to love this. So we have a character in The Final Destination, which is the fourth one, whose name is Milf, and then you have Milf's husband, you have Racist, you have mechanic and mechanic's girlfriend, cowboy, and racist's wife. So what that tells me is the people who wrote this thing don't give a shit about their characters, so yeah. why should I?
0: Yeah, exactly. That is
1: so offensive. It's really it's more offensive that the fact that Michael T, Michael T. Williamson, who was in Forrest Gump, who we discussed in the last discussion, Oscar, Oscar wins in Forrest Gump, He's in the final destination, so obviously he needs a paycheck. Poor guy. Yeah, but yeah, I'm looking at these names, and I'm like, dude, you might as well just write. You might as well just write the cash and put all the names and write next to them. We don't really give a shit, and neither should you. Just okay. give us some money now, because by this point, by the time you get to the fourth one, obviously these guys don't care about anything except the paycheck they get. You know. Yep. And that's a shame because I never like when I feel like I'm being insulted by a movie. Like no movie should ever insult me, especially if it wants my eight bucks at the box
0: office, you know, yeah no that's so, absolutely that's what... true no that that is absolutely true um yeah and 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 the thing is it's like it it's a shame that Tony Todd isn't involved in the series more. I think he does show back up in the fifth one, I know he's in the second one for a little bit, but it wouldn't i I think having part of the problem is with this series is the fact that like death is just such an opaque and just such an obscure idea. I feel like to a certain extent, you need somebody to verbalize that idea. And as opposed to now, I mean, granted you know, cause otherwise these characters are essentially left on their own. And it's so, like, I know t- Tony Todd, probably the only reason he was, in this movie, they cast him in this movie. Is like, oh hey, we can get the actor from Candyman in here, and it's funny that you
1: mentioned that because uh, it got to be two years ago. Two years ago, I went out to dinner with our friend Jeremiah Kip and a couple other people, and I was interviewing a couple guys, and you know, we were all having a talk about movies. And Jeremiah brought up this movie, and he said that the reason that Tony Todd was in this is like. Hey, you want to get a guy? You need somebody to give you four minutes worth of exposition. You want somebody who's going to nail it, be creepy, and hey, he's the candy man. Yeah. So that's the whole reason for calling Todd in this movie, yeah. which is exactly what you were just saying now. So it makes perfect sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the other thing that yeah. No, I'm sorry. No, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like it's like like you said, this is all. This is such rude. The, these sequences are just such Rube Goldberg sequences. It's like, oh, we got to set this up. We got to set this up. We got to set this up. And it's like, oh, this might be hap- – this is going to happen, but not quite yet. And it the, and the thing – the problem with that is if that's all you're relying on as far as your death, you're essentially turning these movies into Roadrunner cartoons. Is essentially what it is. It's a feature-length vertical well, cartoon. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the, the second one
1: actually connects to the first one, so yeah, that makes sense. By the time you get to the third one, it's so obvious because all of a sudden, after that, I think I don't remember what the plane number is. Is it one eight seven? Whatever number the plane is zero. keeps coming up. Yeah. One eight zero. Right. And so, like, after this one, like, when you get to the third one, there's not even any real connection except, ooh, those kids that got off plane eight And again, if I have some weird coincidence where I think I saw a vision and all my friends died, but now they survived because I got them off whatever. I got them off the roller coaster or the fucking bridge or whatever. And, oh, okay, so now that are all good. You know, okay, so now we're safe. And then we start getting sucked off one by one. And I don't think I'm going to go back in my head to two years ago when I read a news article about something that happened across the country to four more kids got off a plane, you know? Yeah. But it, it's just that uh, there's no real connection except, ooh, this is like those kids on flight 180. Give me a break. Come on. <laughs> I mean... Ooh, this is like those kids who came out of War 180 because we're all going to die in really rule Goldberg-type ways and people are right. going to spend a lot of money to watch this movie, you huh?
0: know? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the thing is, it's like that's that's where you really do need a... That's where you really do need a connection with the characters and you really don't get that in this movie. And it's like, arguably, like if you were going to make this about survivor's guilt or you know, the nature of life and death, you know, how, you know, how, you know, we we all die, we're just not necessarily sure how, even if we try, even if we escape death once, it doesn't necessarily guarantee we'll escape it again. And, like, the the funny thing is, it's like the teacher, Um, the teacher in this character, this movie, she's arguably the most sympathetic one because she, it truly seems like she's having the hardest time of any of these people of other than Alex of dealing with what happened to them. And she gets the goofiest death of them all. Other than at the very end, where basically Allie Larder's entire yard catches on fire and it's, but oh my survived. God! Where it looks like the electricity, survived. where it
1: looks like the electricity is actually chasing her across the yeah.
0: driveway. <laughs> oh my God! It's so absurd. But I mean, you know, you, you know, even even with the even with the Friday movies, like or at least the, even with the better Friday Thirteenth movies, excuse me, because there are some true dogs in that franchise. Uh, you you get characters that you're at least interested in in the best one. And it's like you get at least some personality of those characters, even if it's even if it's on a surface level, but you don't really get that here, and that's kind of part of the problem.
1: Well, I mean, here's the thing: you could take this concept, right? And if he really wanted to write it well, and again, I never like judging movies on what what they didn't do, but again. There's a really scary movie here, if you wanted to talk about, instead of Rube Goldberg and all that other stuff and sequels and just, you know, like bridges collapsing and whatever. There is a really scary movie here about some kids who survived death. They're relatively young. When you're their age, you never think you're going to die, you know? You haven't even really comprehended life, let alone death at that point. And there's a really scary movie here, if you wanted to write it that way, about... Survivor guilt because you know the, the one guy's friend. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff and the fear. The and to get into it, a little, it's not well done, but to get into it, I believe is it Ali. I can't remember. Is it Ali Lauder or is it um is it Devin Sauer who locks themselves in a room? I think it's. Um, I think it's uh, devin Sauer, right? Because he does the whole thing where the cops find them and they yes. chase him in a boat and all that. Yes. But, but, again, there's something, like, there's a kernel of something there that they could have developed in the entire movie. And then you'd have something really creepy. I mean, obviously, that wasn't their intention. They wanted a popcorn flick that they could make sequels of, right. you know? Which is fine. I mean, I understand the intention. But if you really, like, if I were writing this, I would have gone that, leaned into that darker direction. Because there's some really creepy stuff you could do with that, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm
1: you, you know... You know, and there's the opportunity to make something real out of this. And I understand the intention. You got kids, you know, teenagers go to these movies. They have expendable cash. The, the characters are expendable and all that. You know. Yeah. How do you feel about the ending? By the way, the very ending.
0: The the fact that it essentially comes back the the sen- the fact that they basically uh, they they survive everything, and then it, you find out. Oh, hey, by the way, it hasn't actually. I mean, that isn't that basically. I mean this this is sort of where I where I liken it to a Slatcher film because you always have like that ending where it's like, Oh, it wasn't quite the ending. It's like you're gonna get at least one more person dead here.
1: Well and, yeah, that's what Jamie Kennedy told us in Scream. Yeah. Hey, the killer's always gonna get
0: up. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I mean and again, it just it just those things get so over the top because the the problem is and part of the problem is the film the film telegraphs it so much. It's not like it's a sudden shock. You know, I mean the sudden shocks are what is truly it that's what really terrifies me now if I watch a horror movie. Like I don't know if you've seen Hereditary. Have you seen Hereditary? Uh yes I have. Okay, so the The scene where the the son is driving his his sister to the emergency room and something terrible happens. My yeah. jaw was on the my jaw was practically on the floor in the theater. It's like, oh my god, I can't believe they did that. Like that is one of the Absolutely. few times I've genuinely been in shock at something a horror movie does and the problem i mean the, one of the biggest problems with this is it telegraph is sent. i mean grant it's about building suspense i get that but at the same time there's building suspense and then there's telegraphing your punches and this is complete this franchise completely just telegraphs your punches well
1: i mean here's the thing okay Horror is supposed to hit you on a visceral level, yeah. right? Literally visceral because your guts are being torn out, your okay. body's being torn to shreds, you're being bitten and torn and ripped apart, that type of stuff, right? Yeah. But my thing is, now that I, I mean, when I was a kid and had, you know, not great taste, I mean, Jason really he scared the hell out of me, right? Mm-hmm. But that's all about the visceral reaction. Yeah. Like, my thing is, as I got older and I got more studied and started to take English classes and read all kinds of stuff, you know, I became very educated and intelligent well, well-read. well, well, well read. My thing is that horror, I appreciate the visceral level, but it also should hit me on an emotional and sometimes on a, uh, you know, on an intellectual level.
2: Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Because a movie like, well, a franchise like this—I mean, this is not care to care. This this franchise doesn't care about ending but the visceral. You
2: know, right?
1: It wants to say, "Hey, listen, you got off that plane, but I'm going to tear you the shreds anyway."
2: Yeah.
1: Or I'm going to take your head off. Now, what I didn't like about the ending, the very ending, is that and I don't want to give anything away for anyone else that's seen it, but doesn't give you, you have to wait till the next movie to find out what happened to a couple characters, which I just thought this
0: was a true. cheat. This is this is true.
1: <laughs> you know, the whole, hey, the sign's going to fall down and the screen goes blank is a total ripoff. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. No, and
1: again, not, I'm, right. I don't mind, I don't mind open-ended movies. Now, I'm yeah. not crazy about them. I, I believe that everything in life should come to some kind of closure, but sometimes you don't get closure on things. Right. So I understand that when I see a movie with an open ending. But that is just, like, cheap because, hey, now you got to come back to see if they're even alive or not. That's, exactly. that's a cheap.
0: They're, they're and leaving, I hate that. Well, there's, leaving, there's leaving a movie open-ended, and then there's leaving a movie incomplete. And I, and Which is what I saw with that, is yeah. what kind of happens at the end of Final Destination, where it's like, oh, hey, and this is why so many sequel setups are just so blatantly gratuitous and absurd, because they assume that, oh hey, you want a sequel to this, right? Yeah, yep, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, it's like let's 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 move on from. I mean, we we could talk a lot about. Um, we we could talk maybe a little bit more about Final Destination, but well I do No no to... I'm
1: fine. I, I think we've I think we've covered the material more than
0: well. So I think the way I wanna structure this particular episode is I wanna basically move through the the genre in terms we start off with the most quote unquote purely horror genre film and we're going to move now to another one that's very much in the horror vein, but you're getting more into Science fiction, but it still has that horror shape. And that is Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man.
1: Um, So before we go any further, okay? Yeah. I contend that I contend that it's since 2000 that if that movie was made by Universal Studios. The title would not be Hollow Man, it would be it, The Invisible Man.
0: Oh yeah. I, I thought about this movie a lot when I was watching uh the new Invisible Man from earlier this year. Yeah. I thought So about this,
1: this movie, movie like, if made by a different studio, would be called the Invisible Man, and that would have been your first Invisible Man
0: remake. Right. And uh Which,
1: you know, I would I would have appreciated it, but you know, I'm talking about Hollow Man, it's something different.
0: Yeah. I mean, no. and, and so we we go to Hollow Man, which is written by Andrew Marlowe. He's one of the writers. He is best known for he's best known for creating Castle, the TV show. But he also he was also coming off of Air Force One, uh, which was also by uh, Columbia Pictures. Um, okay. This was this was Paul Verhoeven's final Hollywood film. Uh, he the, it kind of it kind of i don't know why i don't know maybe i'm curious to see why he, i'm curious why it ended up being his last one and why his next film ended up going back to uh being a foreign film in the black book but um so like we, we like we've discussed this is essentially the invisible man and kevin bacon plays a really dickish egomaniac uh scientist who is experimenting with invisibility for the military it's for military purposes uh they start off by using it on animals and we the first thing we see is them working on bringing back a uh gorilla back to uh back to you know, visibility and we see that happen. And sure enough, it's even though, um, the military, the military is uneasy about continuing the project, uh, because of, uh, because of actually some lying on Sebastian's part, if I remember correctly, uh, Sebastian wants to go ahead and try on humans and naturally, he tries to he tries on himself, and it works on himself. But the problem is, the same serum that worked on bringing the animal on the gorilla back to visibility isn't working on humans. And so, Sebastian is basically stuck being invisible. And so, I think you're. Supp- to a certain extent you're supposed to be thinking about well is the amount of time that he's being he's spending as invisible making him crazy or is that just naturally him and if you watch this movie you can kind of tell it's naturally him but needless to say he gets restless just staying in the lab and uh, some some uh, criminal activity begins and uh, the, the the thing is, this movie actually has a pre—it's it, got a pre-stacked cast, actually, if you think about it.
1: Oh, it does. First off, Kevin Bacon is totally committed. I've always liked Kevin Bacon.
2: Oh, he's I think he's a great
1: actor. Yeah. And I think that even when he's in shit like even if he's in a shitty movie, you're not gonna get a shitty performance out of him. He's just solid and everything. You know, he's been that way for a long time. And he's been in the business, I mean, he's in Friday the thirteenth, the original one, and then that's forty years and he even did I think I think that was after Animal House.
2: It was after
1: a couple years after it was. Yeah. So I mean you're you're talking a guy who's running the business four plus decades and he's always, I mean, I i don't think I've ever seen him give a bad performance.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, even if he's in something really goofy, he's always committed, which is nice. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Elizabeth Shue, who is putting on some really good acting. Yep. You have Josh Brolin. Yeah. Josh Brolin before all the, uh, Thanos and all the other stuff. He's yep. been, become much more famous for these days. So you have a solid core of actors, and then that's part of it, too, that you realize at the beginning, so they're all coworkers, and you're supposed to assume, I guess, they're supposed to take it from what you've seen, that Josh Brolin is friends with Kevin Bacon.
2: Yeah.
1: Kevin Bacon, I believe, if I have this straight, was in a relationship at one point with Elizabeth shoe, but she's not sleeping with Josh Brolin. That Isn't that is the way correct. it works?
0: That is correct.
1: <laughs> so you have a guy in, in Bacon's character, Sebastian, who is... And again, this goes right back like a lot of the setup here I should be annoyed with but I'm not because it's done really well. Like this goes right back to you know, this goes right back to Colin Clive. Think, I'm sorry, my memory's a little shot, but basically the guy who played Edward Frankenstein back in the original Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So you have the whole thing where the egotistic doctor who's gonna push it to the end and he's got no limits and he wants to you know, he doesn't care about anything but the project and the quest for, you know, Biologists should be only gods, because let's face it, a lot of these creator movies where the creation goes awry, it always comes back to that. You're stealing okay. power that should be god. It's Prometheus. You're going to hang yourself up on a tree at the end, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so long story short, you know, you have that. You have him, and you can tell right from the beginning that he's cocky and he doesn't care. And then you have the whole trope where the military wants to pull the money because it always has to happen in yeah. these movies. He doesn't want to wait. He doesn't want the project to get shut down. There's a million movies like this with the same setup. Mm-hmm. So he decides to experiment on himself. But if you watch the original Invisible Man back in 1930-something with Claude Rains, it's the same setup there, you know? Yeah. He decides to, you know, do the same thing, and he goes crazy. Now, I would decide, I would assess it and say that Claude Rains' character in the original Invisible Man and Kevin Bacon's character, Sebastian and, Ch- and Man have the same problem that they, this is just a natural extension, because now they have these godlike powers. They were arrogant and crazy to begin with, and their further slide into craziness isn't really so much based on the fact that they're invisible, but the fact that they think they're gods, and they always have, now they just have some godlike powers. Yep. that makes sense? Yep. So the problem with Sebastian, again, is that you know, you realize that, like you said, he's kind of a dick at the beginning before everything goes awry, right? Yeah. And then, like, he takes, so you have to say to yourself, like, if this were an 80s screwball comedy and the kid and the guy turn, the kid turns invisible, he's gonna go in the girls' locker room, right? Because yeah. that's what, back in the 80s, screwball sex comedies, that's what you'd do.
2: Yep.
1: Okay, because this is an arrogant fuck who thinks he can get away with anything and he's all-powerful, He takes this in a direction which ties us into Carrie, too, a little bit. We have the whole toxic masculinity thing. Mm -hmm. So he's got this hot neighbor who lives across the way. looks out his window at her sometimes. So there's a very terrifying scene. I'm not a woman, but I would assume it it would be more terrifying if you were a woman. Where, you know, he's got the invisible powers, and she's dicking around her apartment or whatever. Maybe she just got out of the shower. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you realize that he's there. Yeah, in her apartment, yeah. Yeah. without her knowledge, and I don't, I don't really. I mean, I always took it that he rapes her after the camera. Kind of, you know, they don't show Same it, here. but I always yes. took it that,
2: that oh, yeah. he Same had like, his her. No,
0: no, that that's always that's that's been my interpretation of it too. And you don't see her again. Um, but honestly, no, you never see her again. And it's but yeah, that that scene that. This is this is where I'm not sure. This is where, on the one hand, it's very much a Verhoeven movie because he always he was always somebody to push the boundaries when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to violence. I mean, you basically look at his entire Hollywood career. If you just well, I mean, this story, is
1: the guy. This is the guy who directed Basic Instinct. So yeah,
0: and Showgirls and started yes, absolutely. And RoboCop and Recall. And I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, this is very much a Verhoeven movie thrown through. The question is, is that a good thing for the movie? And I'm not sure that it is. Because...
1: Well, I think that if... I think that... No, I'm sorry. I think that if you want to take the movie on its terms, yeah. I think that, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Verhoeven's. I'm not. But this particular movie is very well made. Yeah. It's very well acted. And there are some sort of, I remember when I first, because this was one of, those, I bought my first DVD player in 2000. And this was like within the first, I think within the first couple of weeks, I bought a whole bunch of DVDs because it was a new yeah. toy for me. And this was one of them. And there's a feature on there about how they do the invisible effects with the gorilla, mm-hmm. which is absolutely fascinating because there are some great special effects in this movie.
0: There are. The, the, the visual effects in this movie are one of the best things about this movie. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I I think that if you want to take it on its terms, I think it's a very well-made movie, and I think Verhoeven was perfect for that because he's willing to push those boundaries. Because let's face it, I mean, when you get into the stuff where it looks like he's going to rape and violently murder people, this is not a safe movie anymore, you know? And this is one of those movies where, again, I talked about primal fears before, I mean, it's the unseen assailant, yeah, which is creepy, okay? Mm-hmm. No one wants to go down that dark alley in the middle of the night where you think you might get raped, mugged, slashed, killed, whatever, you know? yeah, Because you can't see what's down that alley, you know? Mm-hmm. And you always hear about the light at the end of the tunnel when people try to put a positive spin on it. But if you're going into that tunnel and it's pitch black, you got plenty of fear, you know? And I think that, that Rehoban really does that well, mm-hmm. where he says, all right, well, what can I do with this guy that's going to terrify people? How can I do it where they're going to be afraid to be in a room? I mean, I'm in my room right now. I, I don't see anything around that's going to assault me, you know? But if Kevin Bacon's here and in invisible, how the hell am I going to know, you know? And I think that vulnerability is lensed to the creepiness and what's, what's really scary about that film.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and, and you brought up the toxic masculinity before. And I, it is, I, I think if the part of my problem with this movie in, in those terms is I, I think it just, I, I think it's just gratuitous. When it come when Verhoven's doing that in this movie, I think it's it's as gratuitous as the as, as the beaver shot in basic instinct. It just like it doesn't really serve much of a purpose because of the fact that it's like Sebastian is like we see like we see him like start to like undress and molest Kim Dickens' character. We see a dream, a nightmare of Elizabeth's shoes where basically Sebastian is invisible and essentially rapes her. And it's like, we've seen this after, I think we see both both of those after he, after the scene where he assaults the woman across the way from him. And it's like, it's, if it were just, and I mean, this is this is part of where it's like, oh, it's a Verhoeven movie, but but at the same time, it's like, it's it's so gratuitous. I mean, if you want to do, if you want to do a film about toxic masculinity when it comes to his premise, I I think the new Invisible Man does a very successful job of that. I don't think this does because the new Invisible Man it basically is. Him terrorizing her and basically making her, he's basically gaslighting her. And it's like, this is just, you know, Kevin Bacon's character just being, you know, being an amplified version of Kevin Bacon's character we already knew. And it's like, that's not as, it's not as interesting as it could have been because... It it's sort of like a lot of the complaints that people have of Jack Nicholson The Shining, where it's like if you know Jack Nicholson, you know who Jack Nicholson is as a personality, so you're not surprised when he goes crazy later on in the film. You know.
1: Well, I think we I think you and I discussed this recently. Well, where I said that part of the reason that King purists hate that movie. Is because I've read the novel long after I saw the movie, but I read the novel and the novel, you know, is basically about a guy's, you know, descent into madness and alcoholism, you know, and issues. Whereas as soon as you see Jack Nicholson in the car driving the family there and the kids, you know, standing up in the seat and mom's talking about whatever, and he's got that crazy Jack Nicholson smile. I mean, he's already insane at that point, Yep. you know? which is why King fans now can't stand that, though no, King purists can't stand that movie because it's a whole different character. Mm-hmm. And like you said, once you see Jack Nicholson, you know you're going to get an over-the-top crazy-ass performance, you know? yeah. You know that it's going in that direction. Even if you've never heard of The Shining, you could see that first ten minutes of that movie, you know where it's going, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I think that part of the problem that you're having with this and it was Verhoeven the right man for this movie, like you asked before, my take on it is for Holden has this way of being really awful and really trashy at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's some beautifully shot stuff in in basic instinct, let's say, yep. some really nice scenes, yeah. some really well thought out well planned, but that story is garbage. it's oh ridiculous, gosh, it's a, you know,
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: and my thing is, okay, Holman is the kind of guy who's going to put in that beaver shot because he wants to titillate as much as he wants to frighten. Yeah. He wants to get you, because he's, he's pushing your buttons here. He's saying, hey, here's the sex button, here's the horror button, here's mm-hmm. the scare button, here's the, hey, you have an erection button, you know? Yeah. So he's trying to get you from both ends. he's trying to be really artful on the high end, but on the low end, he won't There, I don't think there's any way he won't anywhere that he could go that wouldn't be too low for him, you know? Yeah. And I think that's part of what people like about Verhoeven. Like, I never really liked RoboCop, but I think the problem was when I saw it in the 80s as a kid, all I saw was the violence, because I didn't understand satire. Yeah. I didn't understand social commentary. I didn't understand any of that stuff at that point, you know? So all I saw was a metallic guy blowing people's arms off after his entire body been blown away. Mm-hmm. Right? But people that love that, I mean, let's face it, if you want to talk about why Robocop is so why people love it and revere to this day, 35, 40 years later, it's got all kinds of, you know, high-end ideas about society and what we do to ourselves and yeah. what we do, hey, making a man a machine and corporate America, and it's got all these high volume ideas. And it's also got, you know, basically people raping and blowing each other's arms off and shooting each other in the dicks, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's what Verhoven is all about. He's like, hey, here's the high-end I'm gonna touch, and here's all the stuff that's, you know, highfalutin and beautiful visuals and you know, big ideas. But I'm not I'm not worried, I'm not afraid to go into the garbage can outside in the street either, you know? Right.
0: So no, no, Was no, no. he
1: the right director? Was he the right director for that movie? If you want to see a Rehovin movie and you want to see his take on the Invisible Man, yes. If you're looking for something that's more highbrow, more terrifying, you know, not leaning into the whole toxic masculinity thing, he's absolutely the wrong director for that book.
2: Yeah,
1: and I think it's really fascinating that we touched on Carrie too. Because, you know, the whole thing is, I mean, with the Me Too movement a couple of years ago and all the discussions we had about Carrie when we talked, you know, a while back, yeah. you know, is that Kevin Bacon is the kind of guy you never want to meet in a bar if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon is the kind of guy you never want to work for. Kevin Bacon, oh, I should say Sebastian, because yeah. Kevin Bacon, I'm sure, is a great guy. He yeah. had to with him for a long time. Kevin, no, Sebastian is the kind of guy you never want to meet a bar if you're a woman. Sebastian is the kind of guy you never want to work for. Probably if you're a guy, but even more so if you're a woman. Yeah. You know? he, Sebastian's the type of guy you never want to be in a relationship with because all he's going to do is take and dominate and abuse because that's what he is. Yeah. You know, And it's no different from those creeps in Carrie 2 saying, hey, we filmed this, so I'm going to show it to everybody at this party because you know we don't want you to have a life. We're going to play this game, you know, because the, the those creepy kids in Carrie 2 and Kevin Bacon's character, Sebastian, oh. aren't looking at women as women or human beings. They're looking at women as objects, and that's just disgusting, Yeah, you know? That's terrible. No guy should ever, and I've seen I'm telling you, I've seen a million of these guys in bars that are just like that, you know, mm. that once the door shuts, that woman's going to be in bad shape, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's just a game to them, and uh, it's all about, and the whole thing about toxic masculinity is it comes out of empowerment, right? Yeah. So Sebastian's whole thing, and again, this goes back to Colin Clive and Dracula, not Frankenstein, rather, way back in the 30s, you know, 1931, it's all about, hey, listen, I'm the smartest guy in the room, I figured out how to be a god, you know? I figured out how to, how to, now I am the one you should worship. I should right. be able to dominate you. And the whole thing is, when that goes unchecked, whether because you're taking body parts and you make a seven-foot monster or you find it in a formula to make you invisible and therefore very hard to catch, you know, basically that's giving those guys what they think is godlike like power. And that's the problem. So it's toxic to masculinity, but that's just a portion of it because it's also mixed in with the God complex, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, when you're creating formulas that you think are going to help the military or make people invisible or make dinosaurs or whatever, you become a god in your mind at that point. Yeah, yeah. And that is a huge part of that problem. Now, if you're viewing it in that lens, that's a horrible movie to watch, not just because it's a horror flick, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think that Rehoban handles all that pretty well, and I feel that Kevin Bacon you know, if you have a lesser actor in that point, it just becomes out of camp or it becomes boring.
2: You know,
0: yeah.
1: I think that having Kevin Bacon in that role elevated that flick to a um, to a place it might not have been had you had a lesser actor in there.
0: No, that that is a fair point that, is, and that is a very good point. All of, all of what you just said makes makes a lot of sense. I I think in thinking about what you were saying, I I think part of the reason the film doesn't quite work for me as much as it did when I first saw it in 2000 is the fact that it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to look at this as in terms of toxic masculinity, I think you need, you need a strong anchor on the other side that will, Sort of counterbalance that. And the other characters in this movie, I don't think you get that. I, I, and now, I mean, granted, the actors do, as Elizabeth Shue, Josh Brolin, Kim Dickens, especially, they do as well, as good of a job as I think you can. But sure. none of them are really as. You, you don't necessarily have that strong antagonist character that. Really, will you? You can sort of buy into being able to rein in Sebastian.
2: No, and I
1: agree with that as well. You know, I think that you know, I, I think that Elizabeth Sue sure, is more than serviceable.
2: Yeah, I
1: think they're given that script is, but it would have been a lot more interesting, I think, if it were her project. Yeah, and he were the subordinate. Because then the roles would be reversed; she'd be in a better power position, and I could see his character being as arrogant as he is, thinking that he's going to die under her. And what guy of his brilliance would ever want that? You know, I think if if that would have switched the power dynamic, and again, never like to talk about movies for what they should be, but I think that if you switch their roles, you're looking at a different movie, and that's probably more suitable to what you're talking about that
0: way. Yeah, and but so taking the movie as is, I, I think Bacon is terrific in this movie. The visual effects, which you touched on, are terrific. Um, I, it's funny that you said that this was sort of like one of the first DVDs that you bought when you started to get into DVDs. This was actually one of my first ones, too, and it was because no, of the isolated score commentary by Jerry Goldsmith. And I love Jerry Goldsmith's score. He, he writes, he probably, and we talked about this a little bit after I've watched it recently, where it's like, he writes probably some of the best suspense and mystery music this time during uh, Bernard herman
1: Jerry Goldsmith has always been my favorite composer. I know John Williams gets a lot more credit, you know, as what people generally consider to be the better scores. But Jerry Goldsmith is just brilliant. I mean, when you look at some of the stuff, I am just gonna name three movies. So the the Planet of the Apes, the original one back in sixty eight, you yeah. look at that score and it's like, wow, this is just this is avant-garde, this is crazy. Like, what am I looking at? What am I listening to? It? Yeah. Then you get to my favorite horror movie of all time, The Almond, with the Ave Satana and the, the Gregorian chants, and I'm like, wow, this is just an incredible. That's one of those movies where if that had a different score, it would not be nearly as effective as it is.
2: Yeah.
1: And then you go to 1984, and you're looking at Gremlins, and Gremlins is like a big party with the music, you know? (laughs)
2: Yeah. I
1: mean, he's done everything from those flicks. He did the Rambo score, the original one for First Blood, and he did this. The guy's just, he's just, and again, he died way too young, and He he just, he just. Yeah. An amazing composer. No, and, and the, you being a music guy, I could totally see why you'd appreciate the isolated score on this because yeah, it's
0: a great and, score. Yeah, and the fact is, it's like he—he he was Goldsmith. I—I do—I do love Williams probably more, but I think to a certain extent, Goldsmith had better range. And I, think, and I, and I think, and the three scores that you just explained you just just you just brought up explain why you do you have the adventure that's very avant-garde and Plant of the apes you have the horror that is very dramatic very epic in a way of the omen and then you have the just madcap lunacy of gremlins and i mean he's somebody who is very much comfortable in any genre and that was one of the things that was. I mean, I think his last score was uh, Looney Tunes back in action. For yeah, I think it was. And um, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I you know I understand why Williams ended up. You know, I understand why Williams ended up getting more of the acclaim because he wrote the bigger themes, he wrote the more iconic themes. But the fact is, it's like. I understand a lot of film I think a lot of film music fans appreciate goldsmith more, and it's because of i i do think it's probably because of that versatility that you hear in his his music and his choice in films and the film i love... was went with.
1: I love John Williams scores, like the scores of my childhood, Star Wars, Superman, Jaws, all those flicks. You know, yeah. I love and revere every one of those scores. But all those scores are big and epic and, you know, huge, you know, tremendous pieces, you know, like huge that you couldn't imagine those films without them. Yeah. But what I really have always loved about Goldsmith, Goldsmith can cater to any type of film. So, like, if you look at, like you said, the way you just described those three films you couldn't come up with three films more different than the original Planet of the AFC Home and the Gremlins, right? Mm-hmm. But all three of those films, even though they're vastly different, he fit the music to each one of them perfectly. Yes. You know? <laughs> so there's that versatility, like you said. And he's just, he's always of my favorite my favorite composer as far as movies go. Because, you know, it's just that you, I, I don't think I've ever heard a score from him that wasn't great. You know, that I didn't have fun with
0: yeah, and, and the second and the second the opening credits of Hollow Man came up, I'm like, God, he knew how to write he he knew to, how to write a mystery score. Like the second though that music really starts to kick in during the opening credits, it's like, oh, I I I remember why I love Goldsmith's suspense scores so much. It's because of the fact that he it's so simple. It's so it it's so simple, and to a certain extent, yeah, you you hear echoes of his score for Basic Instinct in Hollow Man, but at the same time, it's also a different person. As the movie goes on, it's a completely different personality as Basic Instinct is, too, and it's the same sure. filmmaker and composer. And so, and that is, and I'll admit, you don't necessarily, you will occasionally get that with um Spielberg and Williams but not on the same levels you did with uh Goldsmith. And sure. uh but yeah, the the visual effects in this movie are terrific. I I like the visual effects still work for me for the most part in this movie. The invisibility the way they did the invisibility and the way they the the way they um shot the scenes where, you know, they're following invisible uh, beings in this movie are just really terrific and uh yeah th- this this movie i this movie definitely has its strong suits there are definitely things that are very strong about this movie um overall though it's like th- yeah this movie th- this is it's not the it's not the biggest drop in you know the way I feel about it of the movies that we're talking about tonight. We're about to get to that one, but at the same time, it's it's one where it's like, yeah, this one I'm not sure how I feel about it now. Um But I'm glad. Well, I but isn't that it. part
1: isn't, isn't that a great part of movies though? Like I'll give you an example. I I think the first time I saw the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is in my six favorite horror films, right? with Kevin McCarthy and there's a committed performance and everything is like great about that movie. I've seen that movie probably more than a hundred times in my life. Every time I watch that movie I get something different out of that. Yeah. Sometimes I'm watching for the paranoia, right? And I pick up on that. Sometimes I'm watching and there's a really beautiful romance that has some horrible things to it in that. Sometimes I'm watching it and I'm picking up on you know, how townspeople deal with each other. So every time I watch that thing, I'm, I'm seeing something different. So I think it's great that you feel differently about these movies because, you know, the first time you saw Hollow Man was 20 years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that if it's, if it's bringing something different to the table, that's because you have 20 years worth of experience in life and movie watching. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you were seeing it exactly the same way, it's probably not the type of movie that's going to stand out. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's either that or it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, you know, I look at, you know, to, to use an example, I mean, you know, the original Star Wars is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's a movie where I, you know, it, that movie is a very, very much kind of a comfort movie to me. It's, it doesn't really change. It doesn't, my feelings about now, anytime I watch it don't necessarily change. I mean, they're really kind of, settled in at this point in my life but at the same time it's 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 the same movie it's the same movie as it has been for a number of years and that's fine that's fine by me but yeah you're you're right especially especially on movies like hollow man where it's like or you know some of some of these movies just in general it's like yeah you can you i can tell that The reason I feel differently about these movies now than I did then is because of the um, increased experience I have with movies, with life in general, and it's one of those things where it's like, that aids me in watching some of these films now compared to when I watched them then. So.
1: Well, I mean, look, the Netflix that I've watched sometimes even just a couple of years ago, where I'm like, I'll be in a certain mood when I see it for the first time, I'm like that's a great movie. Yeah. And then I'll watch it a subsequent time six months later, be like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> that's garbage, you know? Yeah. Because I think that it also, you know, like I, I grew up as a kid in the '80s, you know, and I remember since Star Wars came out in '77, so I was five at the time. And I remember my mom distinctly bringing me and my brother. was only three at the time. And I remember my mom taking us to Port Jefferson on Long Island in New York. I remember the theater. I remember the popcorn, you know? And every time I watched the original Star Wars, you know, all those feelings and all those emotions I have come back to me, you know? So I understand that as well. Like, there's a certain comfort, like you said. Yeah. You know? And growing up where I grew up, like, all those movies like that and Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and Star Wars movies and those type of things. You know, it's not just, hey, this is a movie. Hey, this was an experience I yeah. had when I was a kid, yeah. you know. So I totally understand that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a, there's a Hollow Man 2, isn't there?
0: Yes, there is.
1: I have never seen it. have no desire to see it and probably yeah. will never see
0: it. Yeah, same year. <laughs> yeah it and it's funny there's there's actually if i remember correctly i think there's a sequel to our next film uh which oh god again, really I've never i think if let me let me jump on imdb right quickly oh my me.
1: i don't even know how
2: you would make that work let's
0: see okay, so it's yeah there there is in fact a it was made in two thousand nine uh it seems to have it seems to have sort of a similar premise to uh, Tarsum's the cell but it it's it it sort of seem it seems like it sort of twists it into more of a horror. Uh, Bent towards like the serial killer actually is bringing his his victims back to life. I guess I I I'm not even gonna bother to finish reading it. I'm okay. So I'm I'm you, see, Hollow Man too. I'm never gonna watch this movie. Um,
1: yeah, um, I'm I'm right there with you on that one. I'm never watching the cell too. I promise you.
0: <laughs> so you yeah, have my word on that. Right. So that brings us to Tarsum's the cell, which uh starts off um.
1: Yeah, uh, before you start, I'm going to let you explain this one because I'm not even sure I can explain this one. So have <laughs> at it, brother,
0: you tell you. So the the quick description I wrote down in my notes here was the movie is essentially Inception, a decade before Inception. Okay. Um, that, that is the quick, is, it's as quick of a description as I can give. So, basically, the movie, is, the movie is really kind of two movies. Because the, first, the one movie, you have a child therapist, played by Jennifer Lopez, who uses an experimental technology that allows her to go into the mind of another human being and converse with the subconscious uh, conscious of that person. In this case, at the start, it's a boy who's been in a coma for several months. On the other end of this, you have Carl Starger, who is a serial killer played by the fantastic Vincent D'Onofrio, who really cannot give a bad performance if he tried. Um, and well,
1: I'm also convinced is certifiably insane, but yeah, that plays into the character.
0: So he he's a serial killer who who tortures his victims in cells that fill with water, and he he. Also hangs himself above the corpses from clamps as sort of a penance uh we'll come to find out that he came from an abusive home um he also suffered from a schizophrenic disorder that is triggered and after he's captured his most recent victim and uh he is he is Discovered by the police led by Vince Vaughn's character and he is in a coma so they in, in an attempt to try to find his latest victim they take uh Carl to Catherine and ask her to essentially enter his mind um it's essentially Inception as a serial killer thriller
1: Okay, so I'm going to relate this back to Final Destination real quick because there is a connection here, whether you would want to think that or not, or believe that or not. So there is a subplot in Final Destination that goes absolutely nowhere. Could have saved us about twelve minutes of film time if they cut it out, and you would not have made it would have made the movie better. There is a subplot where the police seem to think that Devin Sauer's character somehow blew up the plane. Yes and that they are chasing him. There's a scene where he runs out of the house, and he runs in this little lifeboat, or, you know, paddle boat or whatever. And the, the police have the guns out, they're chasing him, and he gets in the water. And you'd think that they were the wicked witches of the West, and they're going to melt if they step in the wake. Because he's about 12 feet out, and they have the guns out, and they're like, oh, well, he got away. Yeah. So <laughs> that whole thing could have been totally removed. Right. I, do you agree with me on that? Because I don't think that serves any real I, purpose. I
0: completely forgot about it until you brought it up. So yes, it could,
1: exactly. Because it's that, it's that important <laughs> to plot that you forgot about it. So here's here's one of my many, 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 many problems with the film. That basically the whole police procedural thing gets kind of grafted onto this weird science fiction horror flick. Yes. So, like you said, you're really dealing with two different movies at one time, yes. and they don't really blend together so well. No. It also, also, I think Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Lopez have absolutely no chemistry in that film at all.
0: I, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah.
1: You know, Vince Vaughn's one of those guys that I've always thought is better when he's funny and funny in a funny role, like dodgeball and that type of stuff. Yes. You know, those type of movies, because... Yeah. He's just not a great dramatic actor. No. You know, if you ever want to see, see how great a dramatic actor he is not, watch him as Norman Bates in the Psycho remake that Gus Van Zandt made. But the problem is that you have no chemistry between these two leads. You have this police story that you really don't need, because they could have found an easier way to hook this up. I mean, yeah. They really didn't need the yeah. police procedural thing at all. So, I mean, that's just on the story level. It's just on the acting level. It just it doesn't work does 't function for me at all and again he's one of those he's another one of those I believe hey your project's not working so we're gonna we're, we're threatening to pull the money because that's exactly what happened oh man too
2: yeah
1: they have to figure that if she were bright enough she would not be personally entering the minds of criminals and kids in comas right. But again that always tends to happen in these movies so I'm not surprised.
0: No, and and that's actually a good point. This actually does share a couple of different things in common with uh the movies that we've discussed. So, hey, we we yep. found a uh commonality between these three movies and uh other than the fact that they all came out in the same year. Um, no, you're Leave you're it absolutely... to
1: us to go above and beyond and make those connections no, for you. Your audience. you <laughs> you're
0: you you absolutely correct when it comes to police procedural parts. It's so generic in this movie it's like it like Tarsum Singh and composer Howard Shore tried to make that exciting it feels like to a certain extent because this is new line and seven was new line it feels like oh we're going to basically do like a different version of seven in a way we're we're gonna try make you know, we made David Fincher made the serial killer movie exciting and and interesting. In seven, we can do the same in the cell. No, it's it's not. And but Tarsum is it's funny the way he uses like slow motion and stuff like that in this movie is so tiring. It, it's so transparently a, a an attempt to make all of that stuff visually interesting, and there's no way to make it visually interesting.
1: And, well, here's here's my thing with Tossum, Okay, I don't know how familiar you are you are with Lucio Fulci. Have you ever watched Fulci's films?
0: I've not. I I know the name, but I've okay. not seen any of his films.
1: So let me let me explain Lucio Fulci to you real quick. There are two schools of zombie fans who love zombie films in the 70s and 80s. There's the George Romero who right. fans who tend to love the American mm-hmm. versions, and then there's the Lucio Fulci fans who tend to love the Italian stuff. Right? Yeah. So, my big thing about Lucio Fulci is he has some really stunning, beautiful images and the biggest garbage trash stories that I've ever seen in my fucking life. And here's why. Because that's a director who is strictly concerned with the visuals. It doesn't matter if the visuals don't make any sense. Yeah. People who love Fulci will tell you that his films are a tone poem. No, I don't buy that at all, but they'll tell you that. Okay? <laughs> Because it's all about the visuals. It's not about, you know, it's, it's again, and there's a lot of visual stuff and eye-poking in there. But there's a director who's more concerned with what he's showing you and throwing the story right out the window.
2: Right.
1: Tarsim, I would say, is the same exact thing. Tarsim obviously cares about visuals well over story because it gets so convoluted and so confusing. And there's two versions of Starger and there's the demon version, the kid version. But then there's the other kid who's in his dream, but she's in his... I can't even, if I had a map in front of me with all this drawn out, I couldn't figure this out.
2: Yeah. So the the thing
1: is, though, but the thing is, though, there are some beautiful, gory, scary, very high art visuals in that film. Yes. Great stuff.
0: Absolutely.
1: Unfortunately, the story is absolute garbage and it's unnecessary. I think that the cell would have worked better for me as a picture Mm -hmm. book. Yeah, with great scenes and pictures than actually watching it for two hours on a, as a movie, you know.
0: Well, and the thing is, is, and and yeah, you're absolutely right. The and the reason I I adored this movie when I saw it in 2000, I loved this movie in 2000. I gave it my highest grade in 2000. I I I don't give it my highest grade now, and because of and I think what happened in 2000 is I was so struck by the images. And the music uh, that I didn't really, like, I and I wasn't really paying much attention to just how generic and sort of pop psychology everything was in this movie. Like, there's so much pop psychology in this movie as far as the psychological aspect. Like, the idea of oh, Carl's characters, like, oh, the abused character becomes an... Abuser himself, and you know all the psychological aspects of it. It's like, it's 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 interesting, and the visuals are beautiful. You're absolutely right, and it's like the the funny thing is, it it you can tell that Tarsum is a music video director, like more than just any other music video directors turn to filmmaking. You can tell that he is a music video director because his his movie is this film essentially so many of the move the images that are just big and imaginative and you never you don't forget from this movie don't really make much sense emotionally when it comes to the story like it's just like by putting this into the subconscious it's like okay this this makes no sense whatsoever. And it's, like, at least with Inception, it's, like, you know, Christopher Nolan didn't try to, like, create... I mean, other than when it went to um, limbo at the very end, like, there wasn't anything, like, just, like, ridiculously unnatural going on visually in Inception. It was, you know... And that's the case with this. It's very much, like every little time we go into Carl or uh, Edward's subconscious or Catherine's subconscious, it's like, oh, hey, look, this is, this is essentially a new, different music video. And that's, that's, that's kind of the problem with this movie overall.
1: Well, I want to circle back to something that you said about the pop psychology that is always annoying me about this short film. So, uh, by by giving us that background, I've always thought that this flick wants us to sympathize with Paul Stodger once we find out he was abused.
2: Yeah.
1: But I find it very hard to sympathize with a guy who locks women in glass house and drugs them. Yeah? You know? Yeah. So, uh, I, it's, it's fundamentally, on a, on a moral level, I mean, that's another problem I have with this movie. Like I can't go that far. I don't care that you were abused. I understand that. I, I definitely, you know, I can empathize with that. I feel terrible, mm-hmm. but that doesn't give you the right to kill women either. You know. So I always thought that it wanted me to. Like it, it kind of twists things because then, like it splits him off where you have the two. Like I said before, you have two versions of Carl Stodger inside somebody's head. Yeah. So there's this this hulking. Yeah, and outright, I don't get scared by much in horror movies. But Vincent D'Onofrio, when he's in the makeup and he's all pumped up,
2: yeah. and he's
1: got the you know you look like a snake demon. I mean, that's some terrifying shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no doubt. But you know, you have that, and you have him playing out against Tay. Hey, here's the little kid, and I'm supposed. To... It's really weird because it's like the movie wants me to sympathize with the kid version of him. It's literally demonized the adult version. So how, the, how am I supposed to think about this character? Right. That's what I'm saying. It works much better on a visual level. If you want to look at this as a series of portraits, like if you would take scenes from each of those scenes that we talked about yeah. and put them on a wall in a museum, you could have a really fascinating you know, display.
2: Yeah,
1: Putting it in a movie, it's just nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. It's terrible. Yeah, you need And some- I wish it made more sense, because if you had the high level of stories that you, you do with the visuals, she'd have one of the greatest horror movies of all time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like, and and that's the problem with this movie, where it's like, the, the part that drags it down is essentially the part that's trying to stay grounded in the same way that Seven was and the same way as Silence of the Lambs was. Where it's like, it's trying to be like a real, you know, miss it's it's trying to be a police movie, it's trying to be a procedural thriller, but it's you know, it it just that part is so thin compared to and really, I mean, any all of the depth is superficial too. Like you were saying, I mean, if you put like individual images from this movie in, like, an art gallery is, is like an art, dis, you know, sort of an art exposition, ex exhibition. Like, you'd have a really interesting art exhibition, but the problem is you can't transition that into a two hour movie where half of the movie is this very generic cop thriller,
2: absolutely.
1: And that's, you know, a big part of the problem I've always had with this film. Yeah. I think that it aims high on the visuals, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it could have used several rewrites on the script. I think it could have taken out the whole cop aspect. You know, there are better ways to do that. But again, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that. That You know, Seven was probably still in everybody's mind at that point. It is new line, and they're probably like, hey, let's throw a police procedural in there. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but Seven, like you said, it fell into the lambs. Those movies are grounded in a certain reality. Yeah. You know, a certain visceral, you know, nasty take on reality, but a certain reality. Mm -hmm. Whereas this thing, it's like I'm floating. I I told you, I can't even figure out whose head I'm in half the time.
2: Yeah.
1: She's going to go into people's heads, but they're going to go into her head, which could affect her for life, and she might die if she dies in a dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is going on? Yeah, you're
0: absolutely right.
1: (laughs) I just wish that that movie had a better story. I really do. Yeah. I mean, even if you left Vince Vaughn in there and found some other way for him to be in there, you know, mm-hmm. there were better ways to go about it. And, you know, I think that him awesome from everything I, from, from just from watching the movie, I don't think gave a fuck about the plot at all. I think yeah. it's, hey, listen, I'm going to put my beautiful images, my beautiful, gory, scary images on the screen, and for two hours you're going to watch and you're going to enjoy, it, you know? Do you know how I, I know that it made money when it came out was to sell like critically? Like, how did people take it critically? Do you have any idea? I,
0: I think it got relatively mixed reviews. I remember Roger Ebert loving it, and it was because of the images first and foremost. Um, of course. But yeah, I mean, I I think it got relatively mixed reviews for the most part. Makes sense. Yeah.
1: That's one of those movies too, where you can just look at it and say, "Wow, this movie is not for everybody." You know, yeah. this is not like a mass appeal type. This is not Final Destination. <laughs> this yeah. is a whole different ball of wax from that.
0: Yeah. And, and but then, has
1: he made has he made subsequent films,
0: Carson? Yeah, he. So he he did a he did a movie a few years later called The Fall, which I was not that big a fan of. And then he did okay. and then he did a movie called Immortals. Mortals. A few years after. Oh that. my
1: God, that's right. That's when I heard about him. Oh Jesus, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, and I can't remember what else he's done other than those. But I mean, those are the other two that I'm familiar with.
1: And somehow there was a cell too that we're never going to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, and okay. which I don't understand at all. I mean, yeah, it, it's I don't know. Uh, let let's let's not. Let, let's let's not um, worry about too much, though, and let's go to the fourth film that we are going to talk about. This was one that we added kind of at the last minute a few weeks ago. And Can I
1: just jump in here for a second yeah. if you don't mind? Yeah, that's fine. So the reason I mentioned this film, all right, is because I don't know why, but a couple weeks ago, I'm like, hey, it's October, Halloween's coming shortly, I haven't really watched any horror movies. I'm in the mood to do vampires. (laughs) So I've watched in the last two, three weeks, I guess, six or seven vampire flicks, right? And then when I looked at the year, like I said, it pulled up, just typed in Google Horror Movies 2000, Shadow of the Vampire was there. I'm like, wow, we're talking about such trash here. It would be nice if we're actually talking about a really good horror. And that's why I suggested that. So thank you for taking my suggestion so we can end on a high note. Appreciate that.
0: Yes, and I I appreciate that you suggested it because of the fact that it gave me a chance to uh, search it out so I could watch it again because I did always have affection for this movie. It is Shadow of the Vampire, which imagines the filming of the F.W. Murnau masterpiece Nosferatu in a way where... We posed that the idea that Max Shrek, the actor who played Nosferatu, Count Orlok in the Murnau film, was an actual vampire. Yes, and the the thing that I realized right away in rewatching this film, I hadn't seen it since two thousand one, was I I forgot how much of a dark com of a degree of dark comedy that this movie had in it. And oh
1: my god, yeah, there's some really funny dark stuff here.
0: <laughs> the, the thing is, you
1: killed the cinematographer, <laughs> and yeah. you can't eat the cinematographer. <laughs> the,
0: this, this was so much fun to watch. The, this, the screenplay by Stephen Katz it's so perfect in the way that it sets up, it tells us the backstage story of Nosferatu, the real Nosferatu. Which it was Murnau's unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. After uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula or Bram Stoker's widow uh, declined to give him the rights to it, so he changed a few names around, changed enough of the story, and essentially made his own film. But it's essentially Dracula in its bare bones. Ah,
1: um, uh, but let's talk about let's continue where you were just going with that because in real life. Okay. Graham Stokey's widow sued Murnau.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> she was supposed to, she got it, that all the copies were supposed to be destroyed. Yep. And thankfully that never happened because you can still find those for on Amazon Prime as of tonight. <laughs>
0: yes. And I, it's and funny. thank
1: God for that.
0: <clears throat> Indeed. And it's funny because of the fact that Because not only do we continue to have Nosferatu, which is one of the greatest horror movies ever made and one of the greatest movies ever made, but we ended up with Shadow of the Vampire as well. And um, it's funny because I hadn't actually seen Nosferatu when when I saw Shadow of the Vampire. I hadn't seen it yet. A few months later, I did end up seeing it because I blind bought it on DVD and I've been in love with it ever since.
1: Um, oh my God! The, the expressionistic—I mean, you look at Caligari, Cavana that Caligari, and you look at Nosferatu, and you look at those German expressionist pictures, and the stuff they do with lighting and shadows—it's just—and the, the way they they frame scenes—it's all just such beautiful stuff. It really is, and and the
0: way and yeah, and the way that they um the way that they uh allude to that in this movie as we are seeing filming of certain scenes. It's just absolutely wonderful. And it's yeah. just such... I this, this is probably one of... This is probably one of the most entertaining films about filmmaking ever made. And it's because of the fact that it decided oh, hey, we're going to turn it on its ear. We're going to turn this genre on its ear because... We've got a perfect situation here where we can just make up the fact that the lead actor was actually a vampire. And that works because of the fact that the Count Orlok makeup is so distinctive. It's not like any other version of Dracula other than the Werner Herzog remake of Nosferatu. And because of the fact that he looks just so ugly and disgusting and grotesque on his own as Count Orlock that gives you such flexibility to say, oh, well, maybe he was an actual vampire.
2: Well, here's
1: the thing. I've read, I mean, back, I, guess, I think I was in high school when I read I have read Bram Stoker's Dracula. And Dracula is not this wonderful regal guy with a cape and pomade, you know? Yeah. He is very much a rat-like, disgusting, filthy, just, animal, which is what Orlok is. And I've always appreciated, not only, did, not only do I appreciate that for Orlok, but one of my favorite horror movies from the 70s, Toby Hooper's version of Salem's Lot, basically made Count Barlow in the same mode as Nosferatu. So he looks just amazing in that film. You know, he had the two rat teeth at the front and the bald head and the pointy ears. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's nightmare fuel is what it is. But let's talk about what really sold me on this film was an outstanding knockout performance from Willem Dafoe yeah. as as the as Max <laughs> Shreck.
0: Yeah, this, this is so I, I in my review that I wrote for the film uh, after rewatching it, like this this movie is an, is a dream for quote unquote go for broke actors. And you cannot imagine anybody else but John Malkovich playing Murnau and Willem Dafoe playing Shrek. Like, almost. Well,
1: see, here's something interesting about John Malkovich. I read in an interview, and this has to be 20 years ago. John Malkovich said, hey, listen, it might have been around the time Con Air came out. I remember that. He said, I read an interview where he said, I do. Every other movie, I do like a big blockbuster movie where I'm going to make a fortune because that means the movie after that, I can make for, you know, I don't need to make any money off and I can make art house projects that I love, that I really want to invest in. So this is funny because I've never been crazy about Myrna. uh, Not Myrna, I've never been crazy about Malkovich when he does accents and he's he falls in and out of the German pretty frequently in this yeah. film, but I don't even—I don't even make him suffer for that because I think that this is one of those films where hey, they probably did not have a fortune. They probably got Malkovich and and Carrie Alves and and you know the one to fall on the cheap, and this is a pension project, and that comes through in every frame of it.
2: Yeah,
1: I think that the fact that those guys are invested and they're not just going through the motions. I mean. I just watch Conair and you'll watch John Malkovich pick up his phone and phone in the performance, you know? Oh yeah. It's not hard. But and the thing is that when, when he's invested and you could tell that, I mean, William DeFoe is absolutely creepy. Yes. Down a lot. <laughs> He's great. Carrie Elwes is just, I think he's the second cinematographer that comes in yes, after they he killed is. the first one. Yes, he is. And he's flying his plane, his bi his biplane and all that. And Carrie Elwes has just had such a zest for things and a verve that it's just hysterical once he shows up. This is You want to talk about a stacked cast? This is a stacked cast, but a really great one like you said, going for broke here. And I think that this is, I think, the first time I ever saw Eddie Izzard, so I didn't realize that Eddie Izzard was a comedian until yeah. I saw his, some of his prime times, you know, his HBO specials. So this is a movie where you have a bunch of people who are sold on telling us the reality of this film and just going so deliciously over the top in mm-hmm. some of the scenes <laughs> that it's just a wonderment. And it's funny because, again, we want to talk about... You want to talk about Sebastian in Hollow Man. Well, what person in the world is more powerful than a film director on his set, right?
0: Exactly, yes. And And that's
1: that's Murnau. (laughs) And then you get this struggle between him and Orlok because it's funny because Orlok becomes your typical Hollywood diva. I want this now. I want this now.
0: And that is what is so (laughs) perfect about this movie is the fact that it takes... takes this familiar premise it takes this outrageous premise of oh hey my lead actor is a vampire and the lead actor is also it you're right it transposes it into he is a diva he will only work at certain times of day he will only work under these conditions and (laughs) they just have to go with it and you have this this Match between him and Murnau, who's played by Malkovich, just absolutely perfect. Where it's like you get the impression that like Malkovich is probably channeling like every director he's ever worked with in some way you, shape or form.
1: And it's great because Malkovich. The more this goes on, the more frustrated you see Murnau yeah. get. Yeah, to the point where they decide that. They literally have to kill the vampire. <laughs> but they're not just gonna kill the vampire because he's a director, he has to catch it on film.
0: So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the ending of oh my god, the finale of that movie is is so wonderfully creepy because of the fact that it's like it, it captures exactly what you, you just said as far as Murnout. He he's completely uncompromising. And he just has to capture everything on film because it's all about the film. And it's all exactly. about his vision. And, you know, yeah, it, it's not just Malkovich and Defoe. You've got Eddie Izzard, who plays Gustav, who was Uder in, in uh, Nosferatu. You have Udo Kier, who's the producer. Who's
1: Oh, my God, I forgot awesome. you about Udo Kier. You can't get any better
0: than Udo K. <laughs> no. you, you have Cary Elwes as the cameraman. And, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, you don't really, you don't really think of Carrie Elwes as having, as being really, you don't really think of Carrie Elwes as being in sort of the same vein of like a Malkovich or Wilm Dafoe or even a Nicolas Cage who was the producer of this movie. In terms of his ability to play broadly written characters, but really, if you think about it, that's all he really—that's what he does at his best. Like you think about Wesley and Princess Bride, you think about his Robin Hood and Mel Brooks film. You, yeah. you think about him in this. It's like he's he's playing. He's really excelling at playing this character that he. Can just go just a bit over, you know, just a bit over the top, and still like ground it in a degree of absurdity. And the lead actress in this movie is Catherine McCormick, who is best known for Braveheart, and she plays the lead actress in Nosferatu, and even she has fun with the role. You know, she's got a couple. Well, I think that she's really funny.
1: I think that what, what, doesn't she get really high once? She gets really like, she gets knocked out on drugs at one point, right? I think. Yeah. If I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, I think so. And Murnau's pushed off because now he's got a vampire diva for a main actor. <laughs> <laughs> his, his main his lead actress is so high, she's not going to be able to film a scene. <laughs> but I think that going back to what you were saying about Carrie Elwes, I think that one of the things that he's never got enough credit for for his career. His, his comic instincts are amazing. He's yeah. just so funny when he has uh, hooks into the right role. And those roles you mentioned, like Wesley or Robin Hood, Men in Tights, I mean, those movies wouldn't be those movies without him. No. You
0: know? No, No. and that. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of those just... That's one of the things that's so wonderful about a movie like this, rediscovering a movie like this. And it's unfortunate that it's not really available anywhere. Um, it's, it's a shame because I, I think people would really, you know, I, I think people would really enjoy rewatching this movie and rediscovering this movie. And like, and a big part of it is, and one of the reasons this movie is so successful was not just a filmmaking comedy really is where the comedy comes from, but a genuine horror film is the fact that they nail recreating the detail, the attention to detail as far as silent film filmmaking, and just the atmosphere that the original Nosferatu has, and bring that to this this story.
1: Plus, well, let's give credit to—I don't know who the makeup artist was—but the special effects makeup that they do on on. Um the foe, yeah. to make him look like Nosferatu is amazing stuff. Yes, It's really next level stuff. Like they captured the look of the original Max Schreck almost to a T. Yeah. <laughs> and for him to be able to, I think that's one of those deals where they always say it's hard for actors with makeup because you're hiding your face. But I think he works perfectly through that makeup and makes it a part of who he is, yeah. which is really what you need to do when you're behind makeup like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, Chip. It's just, I can't, I can't say en- enough good stuff about it. I mean, I saw it in the theater. Actually, I saw, I didn't see Final Destination until later. But I saw, I saw The Cell, and I saw Hollow Man, and I saw um, Shadows of the Vampire. Three of the four movies we're talking about, I saw in the theaters back in the yeah. day, uh, twenty years ago. So that probably adds to my experience, but I remember walking out of the theater after this was over and my friend, I turned to my friend, X, and I'm like, this is, <laughs> that was amazing. I can't say enough good things about it. And 20 years later, I feel exactly the same way.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like you, and it's funny. I just rewatched. I just watched for the first time, a horror movie that um came out a couple of years ago. It's currently on shutter. And it basically graphs it basically graphs the film about filmmaking uh structure to a found footage movie and it does it really successfully and it's called found footage 3D it's really entertaining if you want to check it out and it's like that is funny to think of just how flexible that premise is of making a film of making a film about making a film, and how flexible it can be if you have the right premise and if you have the right execution, and this one really does because of the fact that it's like it'd be interesting. Like this is this is arguably as unique and entertaining as Ed Wood is, and it oh absolutely. And but but the thing is, what makes Ed Wood fun is the fact that it's like all of those filmmakers are terrible. What makes this fun is that they're making a great movie, but the situation is terrible. Because Burnout <laughs> decided, oh, I'm going to go completely realistic. I'm going to hire an actual vampire to play my vampire. And that, that's one of the reasons that this movie is just so wonderful.
1: Well, I mean, you know, you hire a method actor, you have to appreciate the method, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and that's why I'm like, that's why one of the things I thought about was like, you really could not get anybody else other than Malkovich or Defoe for those respective roles. I mean, even like, and the thing is, it's almost disappointing that Nicolas Cage couldn't find a role for himself in this movie because I feel like he would have just added to the madness in a way that would have just made this film even more delightful.
1: <laughs> now, speaking of vampire films and Nicolas Cage, have you ever seen Vampire's Kiss?
0: I've not.
1: Okay. You owe it to yourself, to see <laughs> Vampire's Kiss. Everything that people think of Nicolas Cage about being an off-the-wall whack job now, yeah, you're gonna love every ounce of that.
0: <laughs> oh, I I uh I definitely will plan on uh watching it. Well, uh thank you very much, Phil, for uh joining me tonight.
1: Hey, listen, Brian, I am always happy when you uh call upon me to uh expound on the movies that are not very good and even <laughs> once in a while we get to a good
0: one. <laughs> I'd like to thank Phil for joining me tonight on the Song Cinema podcast. It's always fun to talk horror with him, even if the movies are not that great. Uh, you can check out other po- other episodes that we've done, uh, some of which we uh, checked during the uh, podcast during the episode, including the Rage Carry Two and End of Days from my class of nineteen ninety nine series. That's it for this episode of the Song Cinema podcast. Uh, there's Hopefully going to be a few more episodes out by the end of the year. And uh, this this year is going to continue to be an interesting one from a filmmaking film standpoint because of the fact that um, there are a lot of different uh, things going on as far as release schedules. But it's going to be a full year to talk about in general. Uh, Between the film festivals I've seen, the screeners I've seen, just movies in general i've seen over 300 movies for this year and it's going to be fun to see how this all wraps up uh thank you for joining me at the Song cinema podcast i uh, subscribe to us on youtube if you could subscribe to the patreon at patreon.com backslash and that's it for me thank you very much this is brian scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com com. <laughs>